Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, I'm your host, um, Alex Bond. I'm very lucky to be joined by Kevin Mackey from Coterie. Kevin, how are you, sir? I'm wonderful this morning. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Do you know what? I didn't, I didn't, I always do this and I didn't, didn't double check. Did I pronounce your surname correctly? You did. You got all yeah. the names correct. <laughs> that is 101 though. And you think, I just have a slight panic now because because it, all the things are out there. Even LinkedIn's got the little button you can click um, that you go, oh, you can't, you can't be saying anyone's business name or, or personal name wrong. It's, uh, there's, there's, there's no excuse anymore. Anyway. Well, um, you, you nailed it. So you're all good. <laughs> well, good. Well, look, good. Um, obviously, you and I have met and um, I'm aware of the business, but Kevin, it'd be really kind of you if you could, if you can introduce Coterie, what you guys do, um, just to give the folks out there that don't know a bit of a heads up. Absolutely. So I'm Kevin Mackey. I'm the co-founder and chief operating officer of Coterie. What we are doing is we are digitizing and attaching small business insurance in the apps and marketplaces that these small businesses are already purchasing insurance or they're already using. So for example, Intuit QuickBooks is one of our partners. They've got a treasure trove of information, uh, whether it's expenses, revenues, things that we would need to underwrite. And so our API ingests that information and right there in that platform is able to turn around a quote that is able to be bound. Uh, what that gives our partners is the ability to maintain stickiness on their own sites. And what that gives us is access to very large audiences at a low cost to acquire our customers. Awesome. There is a, there is a man who's done that pitch before. Um, that's, that's great. And, and I, I, I jokingly said this to you before, but so you're in the kind of embedded space um, before it was hot in 2020 or <laughs> before it was cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So we just, we have a, a deep passion uh, for helping small businesses, but in particular, really just being modern technologists and having an understanding of how these APIs work and where we can best and most appropriately truncate the process that it takes to, you know, to get insurance, but more importantly is to increase the transparency of what our consumers are actually buying. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Um, I um I wanted to talk to you about your kind of background, which I, I don't I don't always kind of dive into that much. But you're not a kind of insurance man, you're but you are very much a kind of technologist and and sort of tech startup guy. Is that is that fair to say? That is fair to say. So I, I started my career uh, as a buy side equity analyst. So I was a research analyst uh, uh, in 2008. So I graduated right into the Great Recession. Um, and really <laughs> learned that I didn't necessarily sure. want to be in finance, but absolutely loved the analytical nature of the financial work that I was doing. So I actually took that um, and, and entered into entrepreneurship. Uh, mm -hmm. I started off uh, with my own consultancy, uh, mostly doing M&A due diligence and kind of heavy financial analysis. Um, but through that, I, I met some people that I ended up uh, founding a startup with. Mm -hmm. And that first startup that I had was called Glue. Uh, and what we had was it was really a digital portfolio for uh, high school students, undergraduate students and young professionals to be able to represent their whole personal brand. And so that really got me involved in the technology scene. So I was able to take 
a lot of my practical financial and accounting knowledge, turn it into kind of an overall operations knowledge, make a lot of mistakes, painful mistakes uh, in terms of founding experiences, but really learning the intangible nature of how important culture is and how important leadership is and the intangible things that will either make your company thrive or in the case of some companies I've been involved with, it can tank your company. So I find the intangibles to be incredibly important um, and very nuanced. So I'm happy to talk about all that stuff today. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you. And, and culture, I know, is something that we connected on because um, I think it's so, you know, it's so pivotal and it's so talked about, um, but um, it's kind of handled quite badly. Yeah. And, and, and it's paid a little bit of lip service to, I think, sometimes. Um, yeah. And that's without getting into the disconnect between what people say their culture is and think their culture is and what it actually is. So, but let's start at the beginning. Like, how do you build a culture in a startup? And, and specifically what I was kind of trying to focus on, how do you stop it just being purely an extension of its founders? Because um, that may not be the most desirable culture, even if, even if those people themselves are kind of, you know, great people. Yeah, absolutely. I use the term all the time, create an environment, because what you're doing as a founder and as a leader of your business is you're creating an environment for everyone around you to succeed. Mm-hmm. That's your employees. That's your partners. That's your vendors. It permeates everything. So those things have to start with your founders. They really have to be organic. Um, and that's why I even just gave a very quick reference uh, to some of my past is that it's really important to me to take those things that I've learned individually and apply them now to my business so that we don't have to make those same mistakes again. Because the margin for error in startups is so small that kind of you're, as a founder and as a leader, what you're constantly trying to figure out is how do we make the fewest mistakes possible in a realm in which there's lots of mistakes that can happen, whether that's human-based mistakes, product-related mistakes, or just you know the market at large. So trying to be very precise and what you want your culture to be, I actually find to be um, relatively easy to define. The hard thing is getting that translated to other people and then having them live that. Uh, So in my experience, it actually is saying those words and then backing them up, which is why it's so important that it has to be native to who you are. Whatever those words and whatever that culture is that you want to define, if you are living that and you can show that to other people, then it's more likely that they'll be able to do the same. Sure. Yeah. No, I was thinking as you were saying that, and it's this... It's a strange analogy, but I'm a film guy, so I'm kind of going to go with it anyway. Um, you seen the film Inception? I have, but only once. So uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much I can comment. No, that's fine. Well, the, the idea is that they're trying to plant an idea in a, in a dream within a dream within a dream. And, and, and what they boil it down to is like, how do you get someone to do something? And you start with the kind of simplest, you know, um, basic thing. And they, they essentially want the story is they want him to do something um, quite complicated but they make it about his relationship with his father is the story but I was just thinking as you were saying that that I think you need to distill kind of culture down to kind of the simplest elements you know I think people can overcomplicate it and they can overcomplicate things like their goals and their mission you know so for example my mission in my business is to be the best insure tech recruiter uh, globally um, but at the moment, that's too big because it's just me. So maybe it's just like, I'll be the best, intro- you know, we'll break that down into bite-sized pieces. Um, and that's kind of the mission, but that that might drive the culture. But I think the same applies for culture. And then you see these kind of statements where people have got these kind of seven point, you know, this is our culture. And, and I, I just think people overcomplicate it. 
Um, I think it should be the simplest version of what that should be. Um, and, and that means that you get the simplest kind of behaviors towards that um, without overcomplicating. 100%. The way that we describe that in a couple of words is having a culture of healthy questioning. Now, we've got some stuff that is in and around that, but what, what has been a consistent thread here so far is that I've onboarded every single employee into this company. And so in their first hour, even before that, you know, our culture building starts in the first interview that we have, because mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we're communicating what our culture is so that we can understand if the person that we're speaking to is a cultural fit. It's one thing to say they're a job fit, but it's another thing to say that they're a job fit and a culture fit. Because coming back to something we had talked about, I think, at the beginning of this conversation, a culture is a living thing. It might be able to start with one or two people but it cannot persist unless everybody is doing it. And so you have to nourish that culture. And I find that the way that you can nourish it is by, again, kind of reinforcing the same themes. Um, but the way that we, again, talk about it is always allowing for there to be a culture of healthy questioning where people can ask why, and then their colleagues are going to listen to the answer. It's mm -hmm. really valuable for talented professionals to be able to come in and kind of flex their intellectual muscles along with other people that are doing the same, but they might not have the same role or the same experiences. So to create that environment where we're allowing for our team to be able to ask that why, so that I, as a non-technical person, can ask our tech team, so why do we have to do it this way? And then I'm learning. And as I'm learning, I'm able to come closer to them, uh, them being engineers specifically in this case, but uh, that could be any role. It could be data and analytics folks. It could be marketing folks. You know, If you have a capability that you are good at and somebody else has the same, and you are able to acknowledge your deficiencies, then that means listening is that chasm in the middle that brings us all together. So that was a lot of words uh, to describe healthy questioning. But at the end of the day, for me, it's living the culture of healthy questioning just as much as kind of propagating it with the new folks that come into the organization. Mm, I love that phrase, healthy questioning, because it's something that resonated with me as you were talking, was just saying, you know, I think, I think change, people who resist questioning it's it's never a sign of strength, right? It's usually a sign of weakness, and and you know I don't mean weakness in that kind of macho way. I mean weakness in, yes. in the, if someone asks you why we do something and you can't articulate, then it means that thing might be appropriate for change. It might also mean you're just not the person to ask that from. You know, <laughs> why do we do this? I don't know. Let's ask the person who does know. But it's a, it's just such a healthy thing to do. So why do we do the things we do the way that we do them? Because if there isn't a really just you know succinct answer to it, maybe it's something to look at. Um, and um, you know we're very guilty of saying why do we do that? Well, that's just the way we do it. Um, and uh, that's definitely a limitation on on progress. Um, and and just to kind of roll that question in, because you're come someone that's come from tech and in, you know in tech startup world. Um, and you've been in that culture and that environment. How does that conflict with, you know, insurance culture and, and, and your experience of that, if at all? Um, I don't know that I would say it's not necessarily a conflict. I think that it's a, a different language. Um, and what I find to be really interesting is that the language needs definition because some cases, especially with insurance, um, and I'll give a specific example, but you'll be using the same words and it could mean different things. So for example, we had a conversation around the word bindable quote. I'm sure that there's probably plenty of people in this audience that are that, that might have the same conversation with their tech teams where certain things could appear in a contract that say it's a bindable quote. Okay, well, that's fine. That needs to be coded in. 
So that means that the language of bindable quote from a contract perspective has to be understood in a table perspective from our tech team. So that's where, again, the language of like, what is bindable quote from an operations and an insurance folk in translating that into tech, there could be a lot of things that will be missed because it's very subtle. So it really requires both sides to actually kind of allow themselves to be ignorant, to be able to say, you know what, I'm vulnerable enough that I don't really know what you're talking about. Can you help me understand? And it really does have to come from both sides. Mm -hmm. So um, it does take a lot of nuance. It almost, in some cases, takes a third party to be able to say, hey, I see that you're using this word in this way. And I see that you're using this word in this way. We need to bring this together to be able to do, and this is a, a real world case for us, where we said, we're going to kind of change it and use the word approved quote only. Approved quote is something that can appear in our contracts. It is something that appears in our tech language. And it is something that is ubiquitous from start to finish. And just even the allowing for the uncovering of that, it might seem small, but it was kind of an epiphany to the people that were doing that work together. So it's never really assuming that you know that the word that I'm using is the word that you're hearing. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. The, the, the particularly in the insurance world, uh, you know, language. I I remember even starting. I started start, provincially. I, I I worked in insurance outside of London, and we used different terminology. I was working for RSA, um, the, the the carrier, and then I came into London, started working in recruitment, and I was focusing much more on the kind of Lloyd's and London market. And the language is different even there. Talking talking about the same coverage. Um, and, and it took me a long time to get my head around it. And, and, and I think some of the kind of language is, uh, well, I mean, they're silos, right? They grew as silos and now they're kind of meeting in the middle and that's where, you know, there needs to be a bit of translation. I think one thing that's come up a few times, and I was going to ask you about this is the kind of concept of kind of minimum viable products and, and, you know, that culture within tech and, you know, fail quickly, Obviously, with insurance, you're talking about a regulated product and a regulated yes. industry. Mm-hmm. Is there a, is there sort of a slight not maybe conflict? Maybe that's just something that we have to get over. But there's culturally that would appear to be quite different in terms of expectations. Absolutely, uh, and the way that we kind of look at that operationally or managerially is that you kind of have to have an insurance product team that is looking at the filings, the ratings, the the compliance aspects. Because if you have an understanding of that, and then you actually put it into filings then in some ways that should actually scope out what your front end looks like. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's almost an order of operations. Now, where that gets very challenging is as a very young company and you have limited resources, you're constantly prioritizing against yourself. Mm-hmm. So that to me is where it, it was really difficult at the beginning is saying, what is MVP on the insurance product side? And what is MVP on more of the user experience side? Because again, those two things are very different in a SaaS business you know, there are a lot of assumptions about what MVP is and how you can put something out there that might be ugly or you might not be proud of. And, you know, all of those cliches, which are completely true, but that doesn't apply to a regulated product. Mm-hmm. So you really have to have that understanding. And I think that that going back to what we had previously talked about, if you have a lot of um, people that are used to more of the SaaS based, you know, tech startup, then they're going to come in with a product orientation that might be slightly different from a timeline perspective than your insurance team. And those two things are completely fine. So long as there's coordination that we're going to be doing this on the insurance product side to which our more tech product team is able to inherit down the line. It took us a little bit to figure that out. And I think that that's something that each individual organization kind of has to work through. Um, 
because again, you're working at, at the end of the day, you could say insurance and technology, but you're working with people who know insurance and people who know technology. And that's where culture comes back in. Yeah. Yeah. That's a large part of my work is that, um, you know, I talk about bringing the insure part of the insure tech, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I, do, I don't say I'm a tech recruiter. I'm a, um, I'm an insure tech recruiter and I'm bringing that insurance side and there's, you know, we've created this neat word insure tech because as humans, we love like neat words, but really what you're talking about a lot of the time is everything from full stack insurance companies that happen to be digitally native through to, you know, some sort of tech business, which off, off, you know, offers a very small niche product within, let's say PNC um, insurance business. And, and that's just, it's just a tech company. It just happens to operate in the world of insurance. Um, and so when those two worlds collide, you are bringing two very distinct worlds together um, and, and trying to sort of pick the best of both. Um, obviously the, the business is, um, is about three years old. Is that correct? Um, yep. We started in 2018, uh, about halfway through the year. Uh, so what is it? Yeah, almost three years old at this point. Wow. It's, it's, it's hard to gauge time during the pandemic because it's just, it's like I, stolen time from my life, right? Um, that actually is exactly what I was thinking about. I was like, so how long ago was that? It, I mean, I can't think of anything past about 12 months ago. Yeah, no, I know. Um, but the reason I was going to sort of go back to the inception was that were you guys looking for, did, did did you all know each other and come together and go, this is the problem we want to solve? Were you looking for a problem to solve or did it just, you know, what was the genesis? Where did that come from? Absolutely. So uh, we kind of touched on this at the top. Uh, I'm not an insurance person. I've mm -hmm. been uh, a startup person for uh, really most of my professional career. Um, I was owning and operating a salsa company, chips and salsa uh, at the time. So I was not looking for anything, but I've always had a, a personal philosophy of if an opportunity comes my way, I'll at least explore it and see what that looks like. So that opportunity came in the form of our CEO, uh, David McFarland. David is a fellow in the Casualty Actuarial Society. He was the chief actuary at ClearCover, deep, deep experience in the space. And so he actually, so our company is founded in Cincinnati. I'm, I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, he had moved from Chicago to Cincinnati uh, for a number of reasons, but didn't really know anyone in the city. Now, um, Cincinnati is uh, a relatively small place in terms of getting to know, you know, people within the ecosystem. So he had reached out at the uh, suggestion of somebody else. And it was a very unassuming LinkedIn message that said, hey, I'm looking for, you know, a co-founder and a COO to, uh, to run this, you know, to start this business with me. He'd been thinking about this for a long time. So I, I can't take any of the credit in terms of the vision for what this company could be. What I, you know, what attracted both of us together is that I had a skill set and experience that he hadn't necessarily had. You know, I have been an operator at multiple startups to the point where I kind of had this vision, going back to the culture piece, of what I think can be successful from a startup operations standpoint. I've always known that unless it is an industry that I have deep expertise in, I would want to partner myself with somebody who is at the top of their industry. So when David and I met, um, we didn't even talk initially about Coterie much. We talked about business philosophies and you know, experiences that we'd had and, you know, leadership and all the intangibles that really kind of struck in my mind that was like, hey, this is an investable CEO and a really good potential partner for me. So we decided pretty quickly that we wanted to start this thing together. I shuttered the, uh, the salsa business and the rest is history. <laughs> I'm sad about the salsa business, though. Um... It always started at any time. That's the beauty of it. It was fresh <laughs> salsa. I'll give, I'll give the plug for that some other time. For, for, for one moment, I was excited to think that you were actually teaching salsa dancing. And I was like, 
Now, this will be the first live dance uh, performance on the podcast. <laughs> well, if we ever get to the, uh, the IPO stage, you'll see me do a salsa dance. <laughs> I will certainly hold you to that. Um, there we go. <laughs> amazing um but no that's great I, I yeah exactly i was wondering where this sort of came from because um yeah i i i think that's the perfect mix is is someone that really knows the kind of tech world and, and kind of how those how you build a business within that structure but that deep deep insurance knowledge um you know look there's loads of people out there tackling problems in the insurance industry um that are kind of coming at it from a tech angle and then bring in the insurance knowledge. And I think that's fine. Um, but I, I just think you have to understand something well enough to, to then challenge it. Um, I think those, you know, that tends to be the best way. Um, what um, you raised this point of when we, we, we chatted before, and I thought this is so interesting that I wanted to get into it. And then it, funnily enough, it came up on LinkedIn and I was allowed to make a comment. I made myself look smart, but I've completely stolen it from you. Um, which was, you know, we've just seen the first kind of uh, move of an insured tech becoming the acquirer um, with, with, with Hippo going out and making an acquisition. Um, and I want to get your view really on kind of what you think that means for the industry. Um, and, and do you think we'll see more of it? And, and yeah, just get your take on that dynamic because it's a, yeah, it's a real interesting kind of turn of events. Yeah, uh, I'm a huge finance nerd when it comes to stuff like this. So I, I'm going to give you my personal opinion just based on what I'm seeing from a financial perspective. And it just so happens that insurance and insure techs seem to be in a good supply and demand imbalance relative to where money is going. So um, again, personal opinion, but let's start with there's a lot of money out there right now. Interest mm -hmm. rates are very low. And the stock market has had a huge run up in general. That means that there's going to be people that are seeking yield. Um, mix that with the kind of insanity in the SPAC market. Uh, insanity being just how quickly this tool that had been used for a long time is now being viewed um, as something that can produce liquidation events and just as another means of kind of pre-IPO financing or you know uh, reverse acquisitions or whatever it may be. All of those factors. I think mean that there is an interest in um, maybe more money going into startups that can then acquire and the groups that they're acquiring are now more worth more under the books of the startup than they were independently. But more important is that there's actual synergy. So uh, given the example you were talking about with Hippo and uh, Spinnaker, I mean, that's, that seems like a great win for Hippo. Uh, you know what I mean? And I can't comment on what that means for Spinnaker or not, but I would have to imagine that they worked that into the deal for themselves. You know, four or five, six years, certainly 10 years ago, you're not seeing that type of acquisition. You're not seeing that type of movement. So I think that it actually is several, several things that are coming together at once. Valuations, money, seek for yield, and then just the combination of availability and just needing to make things happen. Uh, it means that there's opportunity out there and insurtechs seem to be taking advantage of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating kind of look at the market dynamics. And, um, you know I, know, I know we've all long thrown true valuations out the window. You know? <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> I did economics at university 20 years ago, and um, I think that was done by the time I uh, graduated. But, um, you know, uh, it's really interesting to see the kind of momentum um, and the valuations that we're seeing on the kind of newer businesses that have um, have been uh, you know, taken to IPO versus these kind of insurance absolute beer moths that have been around forever and, and 
um, that dynamics hugely interesting because you kind of, you know, does that mean that we'll kind of see a lot more of this? Because the amalgamation is worth kind of much, much more than kind of two separate entities. You know, do they embrace the kind of technology digital distribution of these new businesses? Right. Or is it simply just momentum and branding, you know, and, and making people look at the, the stock in a different way? Um, yeah. It, yeah, there's so much going on there. But, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting when the reason I commented it on online was, was the conversation about, essentially insure techs it was kind of a flippant comment but it was insure techs kind of being not a flash in the pan but they were all they were all going to get acquired and bit bought up by the existing kind of traditional legacy insurers and and then we happened to have had that conversation i was like well i'm not so sure um actually and uh yeah it was it's a really interesting set of events but it does kind of reflect on just how much money is going into the sector as well yeah. And classic insurance, you know, we're not going to know. We're not. I think that actually this kind of for me, at least um, it started with Lemonade's S1 and then their actual IPO, which, uh, again, was kind of a surprise as to how well, well, relatively speaking, it went. Yeah. And what we hadn't had prior to those IPOs was public comps. Mm. And I think that from a financial perspective, it has I don't know to what degree it's been a big deal, but it, I think it has mattered that now there are public comps out there that will say this is what insure tech valuations can look like from seed funding all the way up until IPO. And now that we have that, you can actually say, you know what, maybe it makes sense for me to plunk $500 million down. Now I'm obviously making this stuff up, but it, it, you know, it makes sense for me to plunk X number of dollars more now because I can make a valuation exercise out of it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really interesting dynamic and, and, and very good news for everyone in the space as well. Um, right. I wanted to shift gears slightly because um, something I know that you're also passionate about, particularly within the business, is, is um, yeah, the customer and focusing on that customer experience. And, and, and I think a lot of that is kind of what a lot of the sort of newer businesses, you know, such as yourselves, is bringing to the table. Um, and you already split it in the conversation referring earlier. We're just saying that there's, you know, there's two products, essentially. There's the kind of, the actual kind of backbone of the fulfilling the regulatory kind of side of the insurance model. And then of course, there's the kind of user experience from a customer perspective. Um, but, you know, I want to ask you about in a modern insurance context, how do we kind of build relationships with um, the customer as, a, as, as an insurer? Because one of the things that I've discussed many times is the two times I talked to my insurer, which is um, at renewal. And then if I happen to have a claim, and right. the claim is the only opportunity for them to actually add value. The renewal is just, you know, it's a request for money and, you know, nobody likes that. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think that I'll start my answer with my own passion for small business. Uh, you know, this not being uh, my first small business, I've had to get insurance for food companies, for consulting companies, for tech companies, now for insure tech company. Um, each experience was different and each experience, I didn't necessarily know what I should be paying. Um, it was, it was very opaque, but not, um, now that I'm in it, I, it wasn't intendedly opaque. I don't think it just is part of the way the process has been done is that if I'm going to fill out a paper application and hand it back to you, and you're going to hand it back to somebody else, there's going to be information that is lost in translation. Um, I think that that has been the experience of a lot of small business owners is that, yes, I have to have this thing, 
and they're just kind of resigned to it. And they just look at it as like, well, I just bought a piece of paper. We don't think that that's necessary. And I personally don't think that's necessary because of uh, the, the way that, uh, again, a company like ours is able to take your data and essentially mirror it back to you in the form of a rate. Now, we don't need to tell you every single thing that went into our rating algorithm because that would go over your head or it would just be uninteresting. But I do think that it does create opportunities, especially as we are embedding ourselves in our partner platforms, to be able to increase the education about what you have purchased. And I know that you and I had just talked about this beforehand, but I, I mean, the ability to use algorithms and things to say someone like you has purchased. Even that little psychological tip right there, it matters to you know the insureds because I don't know if I'm paying $10,000 for this thing or 1,000, because to me, it's all kind of part of the same. But if I feel like there's a little bit of information to say, yeah, people like you paid around $1,000 and my policy is $1,200 or $800, whatever it may be, I'm still feeling better about that. But if I just get a $1,200 you know, invoice or bill or you know, rating, I might not know what that means. And so that uncertainty from a small business owner leads to distraction. And I know this personally, if we can eliminate the distraction and we can make that experience easy for them, that actually might be the bar to say, you know what, I do want to renew with these people because I feel like I understood what I actually bought. You know, you might not have to make a claim and this is insurance. You might not make a claim as a customer for years, if ever, but when you do, there is value in you being the business owner and knowing what to do. And so if we're able to be very transparent and easily understood, um, that's our goal because it will make the small business owners' lives easier. Yeah, that, the, the claim thing is quite... I love what you, the couple of things you said there are particularly picking up on, but I think clarity um, was, was definitely... Clarity, transparency being one. Um, but as we were talking about the claim experience, I, I'm suddenly very conscious of something. So obviously I've got, um, uh, I've got coverage for uh, professional liability. Um, I suddenly realized I don't know what the average claim size of professional liability claim in my space looks like. Um, and that's information that my insurer would have. And, and, and so, for example, when you're, you're asking me how much professional liability coverage do you want, do you thinking, I have no idea. And I think that's, that's very typical of small business, particularly small business owners, because, and bear in mind, I'm someone that works in the insurance space. I should probably, and I used to work in claims, I shouldn't be that ignorant. And I could probably make a few phone calls and find out. But it's interesting that that information isn't shared with you. Because if it was said, right, Alex, you've got $50,000 worth of coverage, average claim is $150,000, I'll probably buy more. <laughs> you know, I'll increase my coverage. Whereas at the moment, they're offering me an off-the-shelf package, which is just, you know, you get X, Y, Z. I have no context into which I just know I need some, so I'm going to go and get some. So I think sharing more information is is more valuable. Um, yeah. and, and there's a kind of reticence to do it. Um, and it's probably that why question. You know, I'm sitting here going, why? You know, having that culture of why. I'm just, I'm just questioning why that is. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have an opinion. It might be a somewhat ill-informed opinion, but I think that uh, it takes a lot of data and it takes mm -hmm. time and volume and mature algorithms. Sure. So you have to train your algorithms. And even my comments right here, like this is still future casting. You know, we as a young company are still building out all of these because we, we need to train our own algorithms. Um, but over time, what we believe, and we're, we're benefiting kind of from the timing uh, of our, our growth it is really going to be post-COVID and we're going to underwrite the post-COVID small businesses of the world. Mm. That is going to give us a really unique view into how businesses are coming out of this pandemic. 
I love to use the example of a bakery because I think that people can understand, you know, bakery, physical goods, physical place. You're going to have people rolling in and out. You know, you're going to probably, if you're doing well, you're going to do what, 500K in annual sales, you know, somewhere around there. So relatively predictable cash flows. Um, and you got a little bit of risk, you know, maybe, maybe your kiln gets too hot or, or your oven or whatever it may be. So there's current underwriting models that extend back for many, many years on what the, you know, the traditional bakery has done. Well, yeah, we can tap into those, but we're also going to now understand what does the bakery of the future look like? Mm -hmm. And so by understanding all those things, again, just kind of going back into claims, um, we believe that we're going to have the information to be able to make those models and those suggestions work. So really for us, this is a long, uh, a long vision of how we make this customer experience simpler but it's not simple to do so. You know, it's very complex on the back end, but that's the trick is how do you take all these inputs and make the output seem pretty easy to the consumer or to whomever it is that's looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's where embedded insurance, um, I saw a really interesting conversation the other day about embedded insurance because the conversation was, you know, if you're buying insurance through an embedded model, you're the insurance is kind of borrowing the brand value, right? It's, 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 it's borrowing that kind of brand cachet um, to distribute, which, which makes sense. But then there was a kind of counter argument to that was that I don't want to buy my health insurance from Nike um, <laughs> because Nike make great trainers, but I don't know what they're, you know, and, and I would know that obviously that coverage is not coming from them. It's probably going to come from someone else. Um, but there's a kind of an interesting dynamic um, there about, about where it's appropriate, where it's not, where it works well, where it isn't. Um, but it, it certainly will change the dialogue that um, insurance has with its customers. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, well, how do you feel about that? Do you, think it's, do you think there's a limit or is there limitations on what you can and can't sell through these models? Um, I would say niche uh, instead of limit, because in my world, I, I would say, and I know that you were just using Nike as an example, but let's go with it. Um, you, you as a business owner wouldn't really be buying anything from Nike unless you had apparel and needs like that. So it wouldn't be a natural place of transaction. We call it a point of relevance. Mm. We're trying to figure out the points of relevance where people are buying small business insurance. And really that's generically in a couple of places. Um, small business accounting software. Uh, again, you have all the inputs. And I, I always like to say, unless you're actively committing fraud, no one's lying to their accounting system. You know, you put your inputs in, you want to make it as easy as possible. And yeah. so that to us gives a degree of reliability that can exist even beyond like, well, what do I think I'm going to do in sales this year? I don't know, 500K. Um, we're actually able to, to take the data and project and or make projections that then the individual can kind of input and, and change that way. So even something as subtle as that means that the experience is getting a little bit smarter. And then once it gets smarter, then we think that it can, you know, ultimately get better. Um, what was the initial question? I think I went off on a slight tangent there. No, I was just saying that uh, about, I'm not about sure I understand. that was my Siri. <laughs> <laughs> it's appropriately timed though Siri yeah. doesn't get it either it's a bad question um <laughs> I was just saying that in embedded insurance is there a kind of limit in oh yes you said no more more about this. yeah it, so again going back to our, our points of relevance thank you for keeping me back on track so within these points of relevance um 
there's a desire, and I'm going to, again, use small business accounting software, but you could use like the Wixes of the world, websites, uh, financial they're all trying to maintain their own stickiness. Even uh, mailing, uh, MailChimp and, um, and groups like that, they're trying to build this ecosystem around themselves so that people can stay on their platform and not have to go out and get their other stuff. So insurance is inherently, I think, a value that if you're able to embed it and attach it, people would want to stay on your platform because they inherently don't want another thing. They don't want to have to fill out the information that already exists someplace else. So we actually view it, uh, again, strategically for ourselves. We view it as an advantage for us to be able to help our partners maintain their own stickiness. And part of that is education and reinforcement that insurance actually doesn't need to be a pain in the butt. Yeah. 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 There's a lot on that. I was, you know, about educating the customer Um, because, you know, it's interesting and I, as someone that's kind of relatively new to the industry, I don't know what your kind of reaction has been anecdotally on kind of, you know, saying that you work in insurance, but, you know, the gut reaction of some friends I have that, you know, don't work in the industry or not aware of it in the industry, anything happens, they're like, oh, they spend all their time trying to work out how to not, not pay claims. And, and that's like the default, the default setting, yet the kind of insurance company's kind of default setting was, we want to settle claims as fast and as possible, you know, fast as and efficiently as possible. Um, and the disconnect between the objectives of a, an insurance company, particularly, and what the customer thinks, is is really quite shockingly vast. I would say. Yeah, yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I have anything else to add. I, I do agree um, that there's a wide gap that. Um, that can be overcome. And I think that it's because if you've ever tried to read one of these documents, I mean, there's a reason people don't read legal documents that aren't lawyers is that they're virtually impossible to understand. So, I mean, if you go through, I I remember I read my homeowner's policy one time and I walked away from that and I was like, I don't know what to do if a tree falls on my house. I don't know what is expected of me if this thing happens. And again, it's because of the uncertainty of the unfamiliarity. Um, so if you're able to really distill it down, uh, and this has been something that insurance companies have been trying to do for a long time, um, is to distill things down into easily, uh, easy forms and and things that are easily able to be understood. But at the end of the day, your forms are still legal documents. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be other ways, um, to be able to, to support your customer, and I think that those ways are actually able to be facilitated via API or via modern technologies. And this is just something that the more legacy insurance carriers don't have, is that they have to man that army with humans as opposed to with tech and other supports that way. Yeah. No, I think actually it took us a while to get to APIs, but yeah, thinking about it, you know, coming to that open API kind of principle and just, you know, one of the things as a small business owner, you don't have is time. You know, yes. so the, the, if you can save someone time just simply by, you know, counting software, I don't have to resubmit all my details. It's just there. It just it just pops up a quote like that. That in itself is worth the kind of customer experience, particularly when we we've already covered this. But, you know, the claim experience is thankfully quite rare for most people. So realistically, you're buying that reassurance. So, you know, you just want to buy that reassurance and, and or you legally have to buy that insurance and, and you just want to make that as painless as possible because that's that's actually your experience. Um, but we do we do touch on a point here and um, 
you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, three years into insurance, um, insurance likes to say the statement insurance is a social good. Now, I happen to believe that. Um, but do you think widely people do believe that? Or is it something sort of, is it almost cynically said? Um, I, I think you're a positive guy. So you're going to go, no, we absolutely believe that. But but I'd, I'd love to get some context on your kind of view on it. Or, or I might be wrong. You might. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So again, kind of newbie to insurance. Uh, everyone loves to tell me. I, I being literally like everyone I talked to, I also didn't think that I would be in insurance and I'm in insurance for a decade, two decades, five decades, whatever whatever it is. Um, So yes, I actually think that people in insurance at large want to view it as a social good. And I think that there's a couple of reasons, Um, not to be too cynical, but I think that as a consumer of insurance, I want it to be a social good because I don't want it to be a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me is the, where the social good can come from is that the whole thing was intended to be able to, you know, uh, our David, our CEO tells the story all the time, instead of you having to carry around $100,000 in your trunk, in case you get it into a car accident, that's why insurance exists. So yeah. on a fundamental level, I don't, I don't know that you could really argue against that is that it is inherently meant to be able to facilitate risk transfer. That's of course, what all the actuaries will say to me yeah. as the layperson, it actually is just the elimination of the distraction. You know, we've talked about this a couple of times, but let's think about taxes and I know the taxes in your country may be different than ours, but I think that we can all universally agree they're a pain in the ass. So, <laughs> I mean, if, if you're talking about like making taxes easier for us as people that, you know, you might not be having to think about it for three months leading up into or four months leading up into April 15th or whatever it is. Not that everyone thinks about it for a long time, but the longer you delay something you're, you, you don't want to deal with or you don't want to necessarily think about, it still could sometimes be a distraction in the back of your head. And I feel like in some cases, that still is what insurance is. And we've talked about this a couple of times. It's like, yeah, I've got this piece of paper. I'll get it if I need to. Well, the social good to me is actually not only having the piece of paper, which inherently is kind of that social good, it's actually taking that to the next level and saying, how can we make people's lives better through the elimination of this distraction? Um, that's, that truly is what I'm passionate about. Uh, I love small business because it is a constant battle um, to make your margins better, to of course grow and increase your audience. And as the owner, it's to eliminate your distractions and decrease as much of that energy drain as possible because you need to save your energy into so many other areas that having a distraction, it really does prevent you from doing something else. So to me, that's what the social good is, is giving this opaque, uncertain thing that everyone has to have and turning it back into that asset that it really is. If insurance is viewed as an asset, that to me is a social good. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And what a lovely, uh, I think it's a lovely way to kind of bring it, bring it to a close because um, let's, let's go off skipping and doing our good work around the world. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I hope that, uh, you know, we do that in all sincerity. And I do hope that, you know, I'm able to continue conversations with you and your audience and, you know, we really do look to make a massive change in how small businesses in particular are consuming their insurance. So we hope to see you guys out there for a long time. Awesome. Devin, thank you so much for your time. You've been really generous. Um, I really appreciate um, you coming on here and uh, yeah, sharing your thoughts with us. Had a great time. Hope to, hope to be back sometime soon. Cheers, Kevin. Bye. Bye-bye.
As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.